the emblem of suffering and shame. That's how an old Christian hymn rightly depicts and describes the crucifixion, the execution of Jesus Christ on a cross, which is the emblem of suffering and shame. It's a curious thing that in the history of Christianity, it was the cross that was chosen as the symbol of our faith. The early Christians had to determine what the symbol of our faith might be. And beginning with the early church father, Tertullian, they decided that it would in fact be the sign of the cross. And so Christians started making the sign of the cross. They started wearing the cross around their neck. They started decorating their home with the presence of the cross and artwork. And if you were to visit an ancient city in what is modern day Turkey, and you were to look upon the marble streets and you were to witness a cross carved into the marble, that was to tell you that God's people were there, that the followers of Jesus were present, that there was a church somewhere in that city. And if you were to see a cross posted outside of someone's home, that was to notify you that they were a Christian, that they were followers of Jesus, that they were believers in his work on the cross. And as a result, you would be welcome into their home if you were a Christian and treated as family, brothers and sisters in Christ. We hear a bit about the cross, but we don't see it much in our day. Occasionally, history records in the modern era when people were crucified. Adolf Hitler was known to crucify Jews in Dachau. It was his forces that would crucify men alongside of barns taking their bayonets and knives and impaling allied soldiers. It is sometimes even in our present day that we will hear of or witness a crucifixion in Sudan and in the modern era, it was the Khmer Rouge which crucified some citizens in Cambodia. Occasionally there is a crucifixion in our day, but most of us have not seen one, so we don't fully understand the horror of one. In the days of Jesus, they were common, they were open, they were public. In fact, it is probable, if not at least possible, that when Jesus was a little boy, there was a, a mass crucifixion. There was a Jewish uprising against the Roman government. And as a result, many Jews were sentenced to death and they were crucified openly, publicly, and shamefully. And it makes me wonder if the Lord Jesus was present as a little boy, knowing what his future fate held, what was in his heart and his mind as he looked at those who were being crucified. Sadly, tragically, even in Christianity today, there is very little discussion or depiction about crucifixion. And sometimes it is reduced to the absolute triteness of a bumper sticker or a t-shirt that negates the horror of the cross. And my hope tonight is to help correct some of that. For us to fully appreciate crucifixion, we must understand this public execution. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, the historians tell us, about 800 years before Jesus Christ even walked the earth. It began with something called impaling. They would take a, a long pole, they would sharpen it at the end so that it was like a spear. They would take a man and they would impale him through the midsection. They would then drop it into a hole and that man would be impaled. Openly, publicly, 
shamefully, painfully, bleeding, weeping, crying, dying. It was the Persians who invented crucifixion, but it was the Romans who perfected it. They created it as an art form, as a sport between soldiers to determine how they could prolong the painful agony and suffering of those who were being crucified. Well, as we read historically, this is something that could cause someone to die painfully, slowly, in agony. The historians tell us that some who were crucified would take up to nine days to die. Imagine a climate not unlike our own, heat, wind. How many of us would have a hard time just being outside for nine consecutive days, baking in the sun, dehydrated, in and out of consciousness, suffering, let alone the blood loss and the shock and the horror. Yet this was done frequently, openly, and constantly. It was done primarily to men, but also to women. On the rare occasion that a woman was crucified, they would often turn her to face the cross because they did not want to see a woman in that much pain. This was not done in private, this was done in public. This was not done in obscurity, this was done openly. This was state-sponsored terrorism for the intent of placing fear in the citizenry. In this regard, it is not unlike in our own day when there is a, a public beheading for religious purposes and it is posted on the internet so that others can observe it. It would be today as if you were going to the grocery store and there was someone crucified at the front door. As if you were going to the mall and there near the splash pad where the children play, someone was crucified and you were horrified to walk upon it and to see it. But it was done openly and publicly to tell everyone, do not believe what this person believed, do not behave or the, as this person behaved, or you will suffer as this person is suffering. It was very common and it was so painful that a word was literally invented to describe the horror, the pain, the shame of crucifixion. And the word excruciating literally means from the cross. Upwards of 6,000 people in the ancient world were crucified in a single day. When Spartacus fell in battle, those who were loyal to him were crucified alongside of a 120 mile stretch of ancient Roman highway, 6,000 people crucified in one day. Imagine leaving our time together and driving to Tucson and person after person after person after person is screaming and bleeding and weeping and dying while their family is grieving and mourning. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus called this, quote, 
the most wretched of deaths. The great Roman Cicero said that Roman citizens shouldn't even speak of crucifixion. It was too much of a horror for them and their dignified state to even speak of. And how about God's people? Well, they were well aware of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, a hanged man is cursed by God. Those who died of crucifixion were oftentimes disowned by their family. They were disregarded by the citizenry and their bodies were discarded in the dump. They were not celebrated. They were not memorialized. They were not commemorated. They were not honored. They were to be forgotten because they were cursed by God. How about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus? Throughout the course of his three years of public ministry, the Lord Jesus on multiple occasions prophesied that he would be crucified. As his cross was impending and approaching, we are told that he ate the last supper with his disciples and there he was betrayed by a pretend friend named Judas Iscariot who opened himself to Satan and agreed to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas exited the meal to go cooperate with the soldiers and to hand Jesus over to be betrayed and put to death. Knowing that his time was very short, the Lord Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane. It's a garden, I've been there, it still exists today. This is all historical, actual, and factual. We read that Jesus was so distraught that he was unable to sleep and he was up late into the night, even while his disciples fell asleep. And he was praying. He was crying out, struggling with God the Father to the degree that the Bible says that he was sweating drops of blood. Medical professionals will tell you that this is something that is only experienced by those who are under extreme distress and duress. This is the body in a state of absolute anxiety and torment and shock and horror, so much so that blood begins to leak from the capillaries of the body. He is sweating blood. That's where the bloodshed begins. The story continues that his friends were not faithful toward him. They fell asleep on him. Ultimately, Judas Iscariot approached him with the soldiers and he was arrested, falsely tried, falsely accused by false witnesses. This was not a trial. This was a murder. The Bible simply says in the shortest of language that they took him and had him scourged. Those who 
with the original recipients of this instruction would have witnessed this publicly and knew what this meant. But for you and I, it is something that we have not perceived with our eyes, so we may not appreciate in our heart. The way it would work is something called a flagrum or a cat of nine tails would be used by a Roman executioner. They would take the prisoner and they would strip them nearly, if not entirely naked. They would chain them with their wrists above their head, oftentimes over a pole, sometimes their body would be laid over a large rock so that all of their shoulder, back, buttocks and legs were exposed. Two executioners, Roman soldiers, who would oftentimes place bets to see which one could inflict the most damage and pain, would then have a competition to see which one could harm the person being flogged most deeply and significantly. The way the flagrum would work, you would have straps of leather that would proceed. This was perfected by Roman soldiers over many, many experiments on the bodies of many men. Oftentimes at the end, they would have balls of steel or stone. The purpose of these was not dissimilar to you and I preparing a steak. It's tenderizing the meat of the man's body so that it was ready for the hooks. Also affixed to the end were then hooks made out of metal or bone. And as they would tenderize the flesh of the man, the hooks would then sink deeply into the skin, into the joints, bruising the deep organs, causing internal trauma. Many men died from the scourging, didn't even make it to their place of crucifixion. At this point, the hooks would sink deep into the man's flesh and the executioner would literally take the cat of nine tails and then rip the flesh off of the man's body. Some ancient reports tell us that on occasion, a man's rib would go flying off of his body. And this happened to the Lord Jesus over and over and over and over until you couldn't recognize him. There was no flesh left on his back. He was bleeding profusely. His heart is laboring. He is in the process of dying. The prophet Isaiah 700 years prior predicted this event saying that he would be quote, marred beyond human likeness. If you saw him, you would not recognize him because there was little left of him. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. The bleeding continues. It's to mock him as king. And then he is forced to carry a crossbar weighing perhaps a hundred pounds. Think of a very large railroad tie. This wood was recycled. Other men had been crucified on this piece of wood. The nail holes were present. The blood, the sweat, the tears of other men were in the wood that the Lord Jesus carried. They place it across his barren back, 
which is open and bleeding and traumatized. And he is forced to carry his cross or cross bar to the place of crucifixion. He is traumatized. He is dehydrated. He has been beaten by a mob of angry men. His beard has been plucked out as an act of disrespect. His vital organs are laboring to push what blood remains. And he has to carry his cross. Openly, publicly, shamefully, while hearing mockery. The Bible tells us that though Jesus was young and in good health and a strong man, that he fell carrying his crossbar. The medical experts who have examined this have said that that kind of trauma would be the equivalent of you or I in a head-on collision without a seatbelt or an airbag where we are thrust into the steering wheel and there is deep contusion to our chest and damage to our heart. And unless we get medical attention, we are in the process of dying. Jesus was helped to his place of crucifixion, carrying his cross. And at this point, they drove nails through the body of a carpenter. Think railroad spikes, five to seven inches that had been recycled and reused because they had nailed other men to the same crossbar. Then the Lord Jesus was nailed through the most sensitive nerve centers on the human body, through his hands and through his feet. At this point, the body is twitching violently. It is responding uncontrollably. It is suffering inexplicably. Make no mistake, my friend. You are not a good person with a good heart. You're not born with a blank slate. You're not clean and acceptable in God's sight. This is God coming to the earth. This is what we do to him. This is how we treat him. There could be nothing that is more damning of the human condition than the treatment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Easter means nothing without the cross. The resurrection means nothing without the suffering. Be very careful, my friend. I love you, but this is a prophetic warning to you. Don't simply say with a glib smile on your face, Jesus died for all your sins and move right along. Tell them who they are. Tell them what they have done. Tell them who he is. Tell them what he has done. Jesus is then raised up. Some reports would indicate that crucifixion was at eye level. That meant that the crowd who had gathered to place bets on how long he would live, 
to curse at him, to make fun of him, to mock him, to spit on him, would be looking at him in the eye. It was at this moment from the shock and the horror and the trauma that a pool would begin to gather beneath the body of the man. His blood, his sweat, his tears, his urine, his feces. As men lost self-control, became incontinent, and their bodies started to just drip fluid into a pool beneath them. Looking out at those who were making fun of them and making sport of them and making light of them, many men would seek revenge. They would start cursing at the crowd and arguing and fighting. Some would seek to spit on others and certain men would even try and urinate on the crowd that was gathered to make sport of them. Who we really are is revealed under the greatest pressure. And in that moment, the character of the Lord Jesus shines forth. Isaiah prophesied that as a lamb was being led to its slaughter, so the Lord Jesus would not defend himself. Instead, what the Lord Jesus does from the cross is ministry. In what are called the final seven words of Jesus, he speaks. The first thing he says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. The first word from the lips of the Lord Jesus forgiveness. In a world of anger, in a world of violence, in a world of self-righteousness, in a world of vengeance, Jesus' words of forgiveness are more needed than at any other time, perhaps in the history of the world. Father, forgive them. He is praying for his enemies, you and me. The second thing that the Lord Jesus says is to a man who is being crucified alongside of him. For those of you who know the story, you know that the Lord Jesus was not the only one crucified on that day. Two men were crucified with him. We do not know their names. There is no holiday for them. There is no religion for them. No one worships them. Three men died that day, but there's only one that we remember and only one that we celebrate. This man was guilty, he was a sinner. And even though he has been a sinner for his entire life and he is dying for a crime that he committed, he seeks forgiveness. And the Lord Jesus in that moment extends to him the forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life. And Jesus tells this man, today you will be with me in paradise. My friend, it's not too late for you. 
I don't care what kind of life you have lived. I don't care what kind of deeds you have done. I don't care what kind of guilt and shame you bear. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there is an opportunity to ask the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And his answer to you would be the same as to that man. You will be with me in paradise. Some wrongly teach that after Jesus died, he went to hell. He did not. He told us exactly where he was going. He went to paradise. Thirdly, the Lord Jesus then looks and he sees his mother. Mothers, I need you to emotionally visit this moment in history. This is her son. This is her firstborn baby boy. When he was born, like all mothers, she likely counted 10 fingers and 10 toes, not, not, not anticipating that they would be nailed to a Roman cross. And there's her boy, possibly looking at her at eye level. And there is Jesus looking at his mother. He could see the anguish in her soul, the pain in her heart by the countenance on her face. Standing near Mary is Jesus' best friend, a man named John. And Jesus tells Mary, John will be like a son to you. He'll comfort you. He'll love you. He'll pray with you. He'll help you. Because Jesus knows that, that he will not be there for her, at least for the next few days. And he assigns John to lovingly look after his mother. In his moment of greatest suffering, Jesus is most concerned with the suffering of those he loves. He is empathetic, he is sympathetic, he is compassionate, he is loving. And he is doing ministry while he is bleeding and suffering and dying. The next word that the Lord Jesus utters reveals to us the fullness of his humanity. He is God become man, fully man, fully God, one person, two natures. Jesus says, I thirst. This shows that he is fully human and suffering, that he has had a sleepless night, that he is dehydrated, that his body is traumatized. The Bible records that the soldiers who were present took a sponge, they put it on the end of a long stick, they placed it in wine vinegar and they shoved it toward his mouth, though he refused it. When I first read that as a freshman in college, I thought, well, there is a moment of decency that shows that there are some some good people in the world and some goodness in our heart. There was a little compassion and sympathy and empathy for the Lord Jesus in the moment of his suffering. 
That illusion was shattered for me some years ago. I was touring Greece and Israel and Turkey, the places that the New Testament speaks of. I was down in an archaeological dig in the ancient city of Ephesus, one of the most remarkable excavated ancient cities. I was there with some tour guides and archaeologists and professors. And as we were touring this ancient city of Ephesus, we arrived upon what was an ancient public restroom, marble seats, flowing water. There was the seat to sit upon and then there was a hole underneath the seat. And being curious, I asked the professor who was with me, what's the hole under the seat for? He said, well, in that day, they would have the slaves come and clean you after you went to the bathroom. And so the hole was for the slave to clean you. I asked, how did they clean you? He said, well, they would take a a sponge. They'd put it on the end of a long stick. They'd sop it in wine vinegar as a disinfectant. And then as you were seated, they would shove it in the hole underneath you and clean you with it. That was their toilet paper. They said also when soldiers were sent out into the field, that was part of their standard issue for gear. As you're out in the middle of the desert and you go to the bathroom, you would take your little sponge that was easy to take with you and portable. You would dip it in wine vinegar to disinfect it. You would find a a branch from a tree and you would use that as your toilet paper. And Jesus says, I thirst. And a soldier says, taste that. Which means that everything that Jesus says following this event is with that taste on his lips. His next words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is a Bible teacher and he quotes Psalm 22.1. At that moment, the eternal union and communion between God the Father and God the Son was broken. That the Father turned his back on the Son. This is spiritual death. It was in that moment that the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself the sin of the world. At that moment, Jesus took our place. He took my place. He took your place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, God made him who knew no sin. Let me be clear on this point. The Lord Jesus Christ is alone. In the history of the world, the only human being to live without sin. God made him who knew no sin to become sin. That would be our sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther called this the great exchange. That all of our sin went to Jesus. That he substituted himself 
that he took our place. Here's what I need you to know. Jesus endured what you and I deserve. And if you do not give your sin to Jesus, you will suffer yourself. It is very simple, my dear friend. Either Jesus suffers for you or you suffer for yourself. In that moment, Jesus took upon himself our sin. As a result, he endured the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And the father turned his back on the son and sensing that, knowing that, feeling that, the Lord Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My dear friend, I love you. I care for you. I'm concerned for you. But if you do not know the Lord Jesus, you live forsaken. If you know the Lord Jesus, then he was forsaken so that you might be forgiven. Jesus' next words. In a very loud voice, the Bible declares, in a shout of triumphant victory, the Lord Jesus says, with the final breath in his lungs, he's in the process of dying. It is finished. And the work of salvation was completed. It's damnable that any religion would add to the finished work of Jesus. There is nothing that you and I do to add to. You and I are saved by works, but it's not our works, it's the works of Jesus. All the work for salvation has been done, accomplished, finished in the suffering and the death of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' final word. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His relationship with the Father was reconciled, and so was mine. And if you belong to the Lord Jesus, so is yours. Jesus dies. Something that some religions actually have the audacity to deny. He died rather quickly. The Bible tells us it was about three hours. This was in fulfillment of the prophecy in the Psalms that none of his bones would be broken because as a man was suffering and bleeding and dying, he could pass in and out of consciousness over the course of many days and regaining consciousness, he would push himself up on the spikes through his feet to get air into his lungs and sometimes they would break his legs to hasten his death and they need not do that with the Lord Jesus. He died 
fairly quickly to ensure that the Lord Jesus Christ was dead, a Roman executioner took a spear, ran it under his rib cage into his heart sack so that water and blood flowed from the side of the murdered Jesus. Jesus literally and metaphorically died of a broken heart. Today is Good Friday. And the Bible declares that this is good news. The question that we must answer is simply this. How could this possibly be good news? reflecting forward and backward from this historical event. Under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, the authors of the word of God use a little word that has big implications. That word is for. Jesus died for us. That's the good news. 700 years before the Lord Jesus walked the earth, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 5 says it this way, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Romans 4.25 says, he was delivered up for our trespasses. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I feel compelled. It's not in my notes, but I need to tell you, you know nothing of love apart from the cross of Jesus. You know nothing of the love of God apart from the cross of Jesus. And it's a horrible, damnable thing for people to say, we don't believe in the cross. We don't believe in the substitution of Jesus. We don't believe in the wrath of God because we just believe in the love of God. The cross is where we see the love of God as God endures wrath to make enemy family. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as the propitiation, as the substitute, as the one who endures the wrath. If you ever question the love of God, if you ever distrust or mistrust the love of God, just remind yourself of the cross of Jesus. First Corinthians 15 tells us Christ died for our sins. 
And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The man who wrote that, Peter, was a leader in the early church. And they came to him and they said, you deny Jesus or we will crucify you as we crucified him. And I'm paraphrasing from church history. But Peter essentially said, then crucify me but I am unworthy to die as Jesus did. Crucify me upside down. When the Lord Jesus invites us to take up our cross and follow him, it means that our Christianity is more than entertainment. It is more than your convenience. It is more than your felt needs. It is more than your self-esteem. It is honoring what Jesus has done and being willing to endure whatever you must endure to follow in his footsteps, to have a greater gratitude for him and to become like him until one day you see him and you hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to your eternal rest. This is good news because God has a solution for our problem. God has forgiveness for our sin. God has a substitute for our punishment. God has an eternal hope for those of us who apart from the Lord Jesus are eternally hopeless. My job is to tell the truth. Your job is to make a decision. What do you think about the Lord Jesus? What do you think about the death of the Lord Jesus? Easter is coming and there is more to the story. But on this night, we remember this man and this event. I need you to know that the cross of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the execution of Jesus Christ is something done by you. You murdered God. We murdered God. God came to love us and we hated him. God came to bring us life and we murdered him. God came to embrace us and we crucified him. Not only was the cross something done by you, it was something done for you. Jesus died for all your sins. But make no mistake. We murdered God. Father God, right now we pause to 
emotionally accept the reality of who we are and what we've done. And to simultaneously accept who Jesus is and what he has done. Lord Jesus, we don't have words to articulate our our gratitude. And so we just simply say, we are sorry for our sin. We are thankful for your substitution. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who would hear this word, that the Holy Spirit would open their hearts and their minds and their lives and their souls to see that they are a sinner who needs a Savior and that apart from the Lord Jesus, they are living in the path of the wrath of God. And Lord, for anyone who would hear this and think that you will not deal with their sin, Father, if you are willing to send your son to suffer, then you are very serious about your holiness and your righteousness and your goodness. But we thank you that you're also loving and gracious and patient and merciful and compassionate and kind. Without lowering your standards, you have raised up your son to be our substitute. Lord, please allow us to acknowledge our sin and the pain and the suffering and the misery, the bleeding, the weeping, the sweating, the crying, the dying of the Lord Jesus that we caused. And prepare our hearts for Easter Sunday, for the rest of the story. so that after we understand the bad news, we can understand the good news. In Jesus' good name, amen.